The following episode contains recreated scenes based on FBI investigative reports, wiretaps, as well as witness and suspect interviews. My name is Matthew T. Bashir. I was a Port Authority detective uh, for the state of New York and New Jersey. The very first time that I, that I met Ramsey Yosef was when we took him off the jet from Pakistan and we were transporting him to New York and put him on, put him on the helicopter. I'm looking at this rather skinny individual, you know, kind of unshaven, and he just didn't look like someone who would be portrayed in a movie as as a mad bomber. It was very cold out, and the helicopter flew over the Hudson because the river stayed warmer, and it would prevent the rotors from building ice. So we came around Lower Manhattan, and it was about 9.30 at night, and trade centers were glistening. I mean, all the lights were on, all the cleaners were in there doing all the cleaning, so they were just sparkling. An FBI agent said, take off blindfold. And blindfold came off and said, see, Ramsey, they're still standing. And Ramsey took the time to look us all in the eyes on the helicopter. He went around the helicopter looking at everybody. And he said, next time with more money, we will bring him down. I'm Mark Smerling, and you're listening to Operation Trade Bomb, an Apple original podcast produced by Truth Media in partnership with Brillstein Entertainment Partners. We broke the encoded laptops and retrieved the Bojinka plan. There will be about 11 planes, and they would explode one after the other. Probably more than 3,000 or even 4,000 people to die. High score for one of the minesweeper games was Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who was Ramzi Yosef's uncle. We had every reason to believe he had explosives in his room. We blew into the room very quickly. The door had been broken down. I said, what's up, Ramsey? And his eyes opened, and you could see the tears in his eyes. Ramsey Yosef is a mystery. Law enforcement officials say they can only speculate as to who trained him, who financed him, and to whom he owes his allegiance. January 8th. 1998. It's a wet winter day outside the Federal District Court in downtown Manhattan. It's been nearly five years since a rider van full of explosives demolished the five-level garage beneath the World Trade Center. At Foley Square, reporters huddle beneath umbrellas, waiting to hear the fate of Ramsey Yusuf, now known as the mastermind of terror, the new face of evil. Inside, Ramsey sits behind the defense table in a crowded courtroom. Hands cuffed in front of him, he shuffles some papers and silently rehearses his closing remarks. He's here to be sentenced for both the World Trade Center attack and the Bojinka bombing conspiracy in the Philippines. The gallery falls silent as Bronx-born judge Kevin T. Duffy enters. Roy, 
way, before hearing from you, I got to ask whether you're showing the pre-sentence reports to your client, whether you've gone over them with him. I have, Your Honor. Well, I assume at this point you want to be heard. Your Honor, I have nothing to address the court, but Mr. Yusuf has asked to be allowed to oh, speak Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Go ahead, Mr. Yusuf. <clears throat> what this case is about is about the outcome of terrorism. You have been supporting Israel throughout all the years and killing and torturing of people, innocent people. And you have been sending them weapons and arms and money to carry out these attacks and torture. Now, the Palestinians, they're not fighting to steal a land which does not belong to them or to confiscate property or to steal properties which don't belong to them. What they are fighting for is to get their lands and confiscated properties and historic properties back. The number of Palestinians in 1917, according to United Nations publications, was about 1.1 million. And now, after more than 80 years, there are less than 700,000. And the rest of them were either killed or deported or living now in temporary shelters and camps in overseas countries as foreigners. And you have been supporting all these killings and deportations throughout the 80 years. You also supported the racism which is carried out by the Israelis. They have dozens and dozens of cities and settlements and so-called kibbutz and only Jewish people are allowed to own properties and get work permits in these cities. If this happens here, if you have a city here where only white people are allowed to live and work, we would call this racism here. But you are supporting it. You are supporting it in Israel because this country itself was based on racism and founded on racism, on the slavery of black people and confiscation of land and properties of indigenous people. You don't believe in human rights, nor ethics, nor anything. This is what you worship, money. Money is your God, hypocrisy is your courier. The government in its summations and opening statements said, I was a terrorist. Yes, I am a terrorist and I am proud of it. You know, I've been told that the guidelines are based upon the idea that the punishment must fit the crime. I don't believe that's appropriate. I have always believed the punishment must fit the criminal. Ramzi Youssef, you stand convicted of being responsible for the death of six human beings. Robert Kilpatrick was 61 years old when you killed him. William Mako was 58 years old when you killed him. Stephen Knapp 
was 48 years old when you killed him. John D. Giovanni was 45 when you killed him. Wilfred Mercado was 37 years old when you killed him. Monica Rodriguez Smith, a woman who was about to become a mother, was just 34 years old when you killed her and her unborn child. You had planned to topple one of the Twin Towers into the other at a time both would be crowded with innocent people. First, I recommend that you be incarcerated in the administrative detention facility in Florence, Colorado. Second, I recommend that your visitors list be restricted to your attorneys. The restrictions I am recommending are undoubtedly harsh. They amount to solitary confinement for life. But it's better that the evil which you espouse be quarantined than to let it loose once again on the world. You worship death and destruction. What you do, you do not for Allah. You do it only to satisfy your own twisted sense of ego. What you have shown is your total disdain beyond doubt for the people whom Allah has made. Death was truly your God, your master, your one and only religion. Sitting in the courtroom that day was someone we know from a prior episode, Charlie Makish, the director of the World Trade Center. The day of the bombing, Makish lost six of his employees, including Monica Rodriguez-Smith, who was about to take maternity leave when she was killed. Sitting next to Makish is Monica's mother-in-law, Patricia Smith. She had lost the daughter-in-law and she had lost the grandson. When Ramsey Youssef was sentenced, he used it to put forth his total manifesto of what he was all about. You know, this is a thousand-year war, and it started with the Crusades back, you know, in the, in the 12th century, and it's, it's going to be a thousand-year war. We're not finished. And she started to cry. And the, the press saw that, and they asked her afterwards why, and she said, you know, I thought that this was over. It's not over, and it'll never be over. When you see him actually espousing this with venom, you say to yourself, why? First of all, what's, what causes this in a person? And how can they harbor such beliefs? Because he appeared to be sane, you know, but a zealot. And I guess the lesson is that a zealot is dangerous no matter what they're a zealot for. Even zealots that are zealots for good are dangerous. And maybe that, that deserves to be recognized. I don't know. It's hard. U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, Mary Jo White. Okay. Uh, on behalf of the entire Joint Terrorist Task Force, I want to thank everyone who have played a part, any part, in the investigation, prosecutions, and apprehension of Ramzi Youssef. 
this terrorist of the world received today, 240 years plus life. We are also today unsealing a superseding indictment charging Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Uh, he is a fugitive uh, for whom the State Department is posting a $2 million reward. Uh, Mike Garcia, you want to just describe uh, the alleged role of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed? Michael Garcia, I'm Assistant United States Attorney in charge of the prosecution of Khalid Sheikh. Uh, Khalid Sheikh's being charged in the indictment uh, related to the Manila Air bombing conspiracy. He's charged in all the counts related to that conspiracy. The only thing we can really say in addition about him at this point is that he is believed to be a relative of Ramzi Youssef. How old about? How old? Approximately mid-30s. Where was he last seen? We can't say anything more about what we know about him than what we've said. By this time, New York City's Joint Terrorism Task Force had learned quite a bit about Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Not only did he plan the Bojinka bombing plot with his nephew, he'd grown up with Ramsey in Kuwait. In fact, Ramsey had gone to Afghanistan to join KSM there, and JTTF investigators had come to believe that the money KSM sent to Ramsey Youssef before the World Trade Center bombing was to help fund the attack. It was the two of them, Ramsey and, and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, I think very much a team, very much in cahoots. It became JTTF investigator Frank Pellegrino's job to catch KSM. When Ramsey got back to Pakistan after he did the 93 bombing, KSM was walking around with him like, this is my nephew, you know, giving him a noogie, hey, this is my guy, you know, everybody, look, I'm, I'm with him. Frank wasn't going to find KSM all by himself. He needed help. And he got help from another JTTF investigator, the guy in the helicopter with Ramsey Youssef from the top of the episode. I was working in the office, and Frank came to me, and he said, I've got a couple of targets that I'm looking at, uh, one of which was Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. And Frank said, we have to do some traveling, probably a lot of traveling. Uh, would you be interested? And there was no hesitation on my part. I said, yes, right away. Uh, I'll do it. We got our first picture of KSM in 1996. It was a picture that came from his visa application to go to Croatia. He was constantly changing identities, changing locations, uh, changing appearance. When somebody does that, they're not looking to have a Tupperware sale at their house. It was almost as if it was a given that this guy was going to strike us again. I ended up spending six months in the Philippines for like two years in a row, you know, putting this stuff together and, and trying to work it. The world's a big place, you know, looking for one guy. When we were overseas um, and it came to the end of the day, in my little refrigerator in the room, I always had some Jack Daniels. And because we were overseas, we were able to get Cuban cigars. So we would sit there and we had a drink and a cigar, you know, sue me. We went to um, these hotels in Quezon City, which is part of Manila, but a little bit up north. In one, there was a female manager, and we said, we think somebody stayed here. Can we look at your records? 
we would go, go down into the basement and we'd be digging through piles of signing cards for hours. You'd see the wormholes going through the, the cards. They had extremely large cockroaches that we were constantly fending off. But we hit pay dirt a couple of times. We found signing cards that we were able to identify prints on the cards. And we learned that Ramsey got there in 1994. And KSM showed up a couple of weeks later. A lot of reports came out that him and KSM were just hanging out in the bars, getting drunk and chasing women in the Philippines. Manila is loaded with nightlife. When walking down the streets in, in Manila, you're surrounded by people trying to hawk you to come into bars where, you know, girls are dancing on, on, on the bar. They both had steady girlfriends at one time or another. So we went, we found this girl. Agents Bashir and Pellegrino take a drive to the outskirts of Manila to a ramshackle house that belongs to a dancer who worked at a bar the KSM frequented. The agents knock on her door, and a young woman answers. Bashir offers a gift, one pint of mango ice cream. They're welcomed inside. Bashir and Pellegrino begin questioning the young woman about Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. She's not forthcoming at first, but her father overhears the conversation. He still writes her, he says. And the man brings out a box of letters. One is a Christmas card. In another, KSM claims to be a Catholic priest. Agents Bashir and Pellegrino send the letters back to the FBI lab in Quantico. On an envelope, concealed by a layer of whiteout, is a pre-printed return address. It reads, The Ministry of Water and Electricity, Doha, Qatar. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was living in Doha and working for the Ministry of Water and Electricity. So I land happy as can be knowing that he's there. You know, it's the size of Rhode Island. It's a tiny little place. It was during Ramadan, so got hungry during the day. <laughs> um, but we weren't allowed to visit with the authorities in Gutter. It was tough. The ambassador would go by himself. And he would come back and tell us what was said. The ambassadors seemed aloof. And you find that sometimes with some of these smaller countries, the ambassadors tend to be a little bit more concerned about the country they're in instead of our country. I think he was trying not to, to push too hard and trying not to rock the boat. I remember at one point the ambassador saying to me, well, how serious is this? I'm like, do you want to talk to a prosecutor? And he goes, well, that would be great. And that's when I called Mike Garcia. It was about 4 a.m. and I woke Mike up. You know, he gets on the phone all groggy. I go, Mike, wake up. You got to talk to the ambassador. I said, I think he's nuts, but he wants to know if you guys are serious. And Mike's like, are you kidding me? I put the ambassador on and he told the ambassador, you know, we at the Southern District don't indict people that we're not serious about putting on trial and convicting. So yes, yes, we want him. KSM is a serious person, indicted for serious crimes. 
and he needs to be picked up. And then it was all about the Qataris' concern for having their fingerprints on actually arresting somebody like this and for helping us. So we tried to develop a plan to pick him up without making it look like they helped. The plan was that the Qataris would lure him outside the country. I was going to get on the same plane with him and then identify him and then he'd get picked up. But then at one point, the ambassador came back from a meeting with the authorities and he pulled us all in and said, he's gone. They had him under surveillance and he disappeared. So, like, what does that mean, disappear? He says, well, they, they don't have him anymore. They don't know where he is. Oh, really? I mean, they can't find the fucking guy? Are you kidding me? Where is he? Is, are they on the airports? Are they on the bridges? Could he have left the country already? Oh, they don't know where he is. And, you know, my thought at the time was, either you didn't have him or, you, you know, you're bullshitting me then or you're bullshitting me now. I mean, how do you lose the guy? I was furious. I was furious. But then uh, that was it. And he was, he was in the wind. August 7th, 1998, car bombs exploded outside the U.S. embassies in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam. The attacks killed more than 200 people and was the first major attack by al-Qaeda on American targets. Mr. Bin Laden, you have declared a jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? The U.S. government has committed acts that are extremely unjust, hideous, and criminal through its support of the Israeli occupation of Palestine. And we believe the U.S. is directly responsible for those killed in Palestine, Lebanon, and Iraq. For this and other acts of aggression and injustice, we have declared jihad against the U.S. The U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation placed al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden on its list of most wanted fugitives. What are your future plans? You'll see them and hear about them in the media. God willing. All of a sudden, everybody was laser-focused on bin Laden and his activities. So Khalid Sheikh Mohammed became like the bastard stepchild. You know, they didn't really see the possible bigger picture. It was a, a very, very difficult situation for us because we were basically two individuals trying to do this massive investigation, which a lot of people didn't think was important. Frank and I would hear in the office that Bashir and Pellegrino are on another boondoggle, you know, going overseas, you know, and it, 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 it was tough because we were fighting an uphill battle with the administration as well as fighting the battle to try to catch KSM. One day I sat down next to Frank and I said, I'm, I got to go. I'm retiring. I, 25 years. I, I stayed an additional five years just so I could work with Frank and work in the task force. I love Matt. He, he spent six six years working together, and uh, it's probably uh, the best six years I had at the bureau working with him. And uh, if he was on your side, man, he was about as loyal as somebody could be. I, I loved what I was doing. I loved working with Frank. Without a question, I'd take a bullet for him. But, you know, I couldn't work under those conditions. 
So I left. It is another steamy day in South Florida. We have a whole lot of sunshine. I retired and went to Punta Gorda, Florida. A line of showers and storms extending from Sarasota. My general comment about the city was it's not the end of the world, but you could see it from here. And mid 80s out in Okeechobee were pretty quiet. One day I got my morning exercise in, went home, and uh, I went into the back room where the computer was. And from the living room, I hear Barbara say, a plane just hit the World Trade Center. And I just, I just collapsed. And I got up very, very slowly, and I walked out to where I could see the TV. There has been a plane crash on the uh, southern tip of Manhattan. You're looking at the uh, World Trade Center. We understand that a plane has crashed. And she looked back at me and she said, they said it's a little plane, right? It's a little plane. And I, I shook my head. I said, no. And shortly after that, the second plane came in. Oh, my God. That looks like a second plane. Obviously a major fire there. Then I went into the bedroom and I just started grabbing raid jackets, I started grabbing weapons. And Barbara came in and she started yelling at me. She goes, what are you gonna do? And I turned around and I, I grabbed her by the arms and I shook her and I said, I told you these guys were coming back. About a minute after that, my phone rings and it was Frank calling me from Malaysia. And he was bash. Look what they did to us. The first thing I thought was, because it was the Trade Center, you know, it was the airplanes crashing into the buildings. So I thought to myself, you know, who else would do this? You know, I remember calling Maddie. I said, uh, it's got to be. It's got to be. And he, he thought so, too. And I just sank down onto the floor. I was crying. Frank was crying. And we just knew. The federal prison in Florence, Colorado, sits in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. This prison is known as a supermax, designed to house the most violent criminals in the country. Inside is Bomber's Row, home to Ted Kaczynski, Timothy McVeigh, Terry Nichols, and Ramsey Youssef. It's been three and a half years since Ramsey was sent to this place. He lays on a concrete bunk in a 7-by-12-foot cell. A tray of oatmeal, a banana, and a carton of orange juice is slid through a slot in the door. Yusuf rises for another 23-hour day of isolation. He places the tray on a concrete desk beside his Quran and court papers given to him by his lawyer. As he eats, Yusuf begins to hear muffled banging from the adjacent cells. Then he turns on a 13-inch black-and-white television attached to the wall. New York City. This is at the World Trade Center, and there has been some sort of explosion. We don't fully know the details. There is one report as of yet unconfirmed, that a plane has hit 
of the World Trade Center, and you can see that there is smoke there coming out of at least two sides. Two prison guards approach. They open Yusuf's cell, cuff his ankles to his wrists, throw a bag over his head, and shuffle him to a holding cell for questioning. When I went to see Ramsey Yosef after 9-11, we wanted to have a talk with him. And, and listen, you go to the Bureau of Prisons, you, you have to adhere to their rules. And so their first thing was, you're going to have to talk to him through the thick glass and on the phone. So I picked up the phone. He's on the phone. I asked him, who blew up the Trade Center? He told me he thought that it was his uncle. It was KSM who did it. That it was retribution for him you know, based on the fact that it was the Trade Center. This this woman who stood at the window and, you know, tucked in her shirt and adjusted her skirt, and then she jumped from the, you know, 98th floor. I mean, trying to find some dignity up there and then you know, having a leap from the World Trade Center. I can't imagine. That is your best option. Everything I've done seems to have a string through KSM. And, uh, you know, that's, that was the tough one to get over. And, and still is. I mean, you know, I don't, not a day go by, I don't think about him or it or, and it's always like, well, what could have been done differently? You know, what if I had, found them. What if I pushed a little bit harder? What if I yelled at the ambassador a little bit more? Um, that poor one wouldn't have had to jump. It's um, very difficult to live with because it's not only the 23 New York City police, 37 Port Authority, 343 firemen. It's all the poor civilians that just went to work that morning. It never goes away, and it's, it's, it's sometimes very, very difficult to, to sleep because that's, a lot of that is, it's, I feel is on me, you know, and um, our, our failure to, to do what we had set out to do. For most of us, two planes flying into the World Trade Center seemed to come out of nowhere. But clearly, this wasn't the first time someone had tried to take down the towers. Ramzi Youssef tried in 1993. Then KSM, with Osama bin Laden's help, succeeded in 2001. Well, Youssef told investigator Matt Bashir on that helicopter flying by the World Trade Center had come true. Next time with more money, they did bring the towers down. For the people who spoke to us, 9-11 reopened old wounds and created new ones. Tim Lang, from Episode 1, the man trapped on parking level B2 of the North Tower when the bomb went off, found himself back downtown on 9-11. He was working there with his brother. And somebody ran and said, a plane just hit the, the tower. 
We ran out back to Rector Street, looked straight up. By the way, the smell was the same smell from 93. Looking up at the smoke and flames, Tim had one thought. Could see the flames, North Tower, knew exactly where my sister was working and that she was just above the flames. Tim's sister and his nephew both worked in the World Trade Center. So we ran into Battery Park, and then my brother and I made it down to the ferry, and as we turned the uh, tip of Manhattan, we looked out the window and saw the first tower fall. And I turned to my brother and said, we should pray now. Tim's sister, Roseanne, and his nephew, Brendan, were two of the almost 3,000 people lost that day. And once again, Tim found himself at the crossroads of tragedy. I have a faith that says, love your neighbor. I mean, maybe I can't love them, but I can begin forgiving. I don't want to be filled with vengeance or hate. And maybe that's part of why I want to talk now. I can't help the evil that exists in the world, but I can help the way I react to it, and I can help who I am. And who I am is somebody that doesn't want that hate. You might remember Zach Ibrahim from Episode 2. His father, El Said Nosser, grew up in Egypt during its war with Israel. He came to America to escape constant conflict, only to end up shooting a radical rabbi in a midtown hotel. After his father was in the news, Zach and his family became the target of harassment and even death threats. But things got even worse after 9-11. Zach had just finished high school when the planes hit the towers. I couldn't help just thinking to myself, my God, I hope it's not Muslims. Please don't let it be Muslims. Sure enough, after it became clear, you know, what had happened, started hearing the stories of Muslims being attacked, you know, friends of mine um, getting beaten up in school or people being shot for wearing scarves. Zach ended up writing a book called The Terrorist Son, and he started talking publicly about his life with his father. You know, the appeal for people like my father is this idea that they can change the oppression that they have witnessed for so much of their lives. And I think that there are plenty of people in this world who look to take advantage of those who want to try and make a difference for the people that they love and can become indoctrinated by very appealing ideologies that tell them that they're doing this for God. Baghdad is being hit. Wow, the whole sky just lit up in front of me. We do know that the Iraqi regime currently has chemical and biological weapons of mass destruction. What better way to convince the American public that to keep them safe, we have to invade Iraq or we have to uh, fight an endless war in Afghanistan than to point to atrocities committed by extremists whose extremism is born from the oppression created by Western influence. Good afternoon. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. 
At least 19 people were killed today at a hospital in Afghanistan. It was bombed in what appears to have been an American airstrike aimed at Taliban militants. To justify committing all sorts of horrible atrocities against men, women, and children who had nothing to do with anything that resembled my father's ideology. I'm announcing today that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed can face justice. In 2003, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was caught just 20 kilometers from where they caught Ramzi Youssef. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was strapped to a board, tilted head down, a cloth placed over his face, and water poured over his mouth to give the sensation of drowning. They had to pour the water more than 180 times. The techniques uh, were, are, were necessary and are necessary to protect the American people. KSM was transported to several CIA black sites before arriving at a remote U.S. military detention camp built after 9-11. This tribunal is being conducted on board U.S. Naval Base Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, do you wish to now make any final statement to the tribunal? The detainee has asked me to read his final statement to the tribunal. One. I was responsible for the 1993 World Trade Center operation. I was responsible for the assassination attempt against Pope John Paul II while he was visiting the Philippines. I was responsible for the planning and surveying needed to execute the Bojinka operation. I was the operational director for Sheikh Osama bin Laden for the organizing, planning, follow-up, and execution of the 9-11 operation. KSM has been held in solitary confinement awaiting trial for 20 years. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, do you understand this process? Yes. Operation Trade Bomb is an Apple original podcast produced by Truth Media in partnership with Brillstein Entertainment Partners. We'd like to thank everyone who shared their time and stories with us. And we would like to dedicate this episode to the memory of retired Port Authority detective Matthew Bashir. Zach Goldbaum is our senior producer. This episode of Operation Trade Bomb was produced by Kenny Kusiak, Alexa Burke, Michael May, Meher Ahmad, and Alessandro Santoro. Story editing is by me, Mark Smerling. John Liebman is our executive producer. Scott Curtis is our production manager. Bridget Busa is our associate producer. Sound design is by Kenny Kusiak with help from Alexa Burke and Alessandro Santoro. George Draping Hicks did the mix. Music by Kenny Kusiak. Our title track is Momentum by Kenny Kusiak. Voice acting by Phil Thompson, Nicholas Gray, and Ali Al-Faraj. Production legal by Ryan Nord and Matthew Papa at the Nord Group. Legal review by Linda Steinman, Abigail Everdell, and Alison Cherie at Davis Wright Tremaine. Fact checking by Dania Suleiman. The production would like to thank Nuha Musla, Amr Latif, Ruhan Ahmed, Latisha Naidu, Ahmed Fateha, Hiba Afifi, Juan Bernardo Custodio, and Evan Pishan. And finally, one more special thanks to you for listening all the way to the end. <laughs> <laughs>